On May 2nd, 1995, Kiplin Davis disappeared from her high school without a trace. She left all her belongings in her locker and showed no signs of running away. At the time, they didn't realize this case would never be completely closed. And to this day, this case is considered a solved, no-body case. Hi guys, and welcome to my podcast. I'm your host, Lulu, and today's case is kind of an interesting one. It's considered a solved no-body case, and to me, I'm not 100% sure if it's solved yet. This is the case that actually spiraled me down my obsession with true crime, because of all its twists and turns, all the confusing details surrounding it, the different theories, and because it actually happened in my hometown, everybody always talked about it. Everybody I talked to knew about this case, and when I was younger, there would be flyers all over the gas stations around this school. They would be around all the grocery stores. There used to be so many of these. And throughout the years, this case really has just gone cold. Nobody cares about it. Nobody talks about it anymore. And I really see the occasional flyer now and then. Traction has really stopped in this case. The media isn't covering it as much. Police aren't conducting near as many searches as they used to. And it's almost like everybody has forgotten about Kiplin Davis. Everybody has forgotten that she has a family that is still waiting for her to come home. And the sad thing is, that family knows that she's not coming home alive. They know they're waiting for her body, and they keep a porch light on every single night, waiting and hoping that someday she will come home. Anyways, let's go ahead and jump into the case of Kiplin Davis. Kiplin Davis was a 15-year-old sophomore at Spanish Fork High School. She was like a lot of 15-year-olds, and her appearance meant a lot to her. The morning of her disappearance, she had woken up late. She had pushed her snooze button one too many times, just sleeping in a little bit too long. Her father actually came and woke her up when he realized that she was not up at her normal time. She then flew into a panic and begged her parents to please, please let her stay home. She begged her parents to please let her skip her morning driver's ed class just this one time. She'd never skipped one before, so she could get ready, so she didn't have to go to school without her makeup done, without her hair nice. But her parents, knowing that she wanted her driver's license as badly as she did, told her no. And I totally get where she's coming from, because when I was young, if my mom told me I needed to go to school without makeup or my hair done, I would have lost my mind. That meant everything to me. And I also understand where her parents are coming from, because as you get older, you realize that that really doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Those kind of things aren't going to get you anywhere in life. Things like your driver's license are going to get you far in life. So I get both sides of the story, and I also understand why Kiplin would be so upset that her parents told her no. In the end, their argument ended with Kiplin crying, but getting into the car to go to her early driver's ed class. Her mother said as they got there, she was still crying in the car and she just kind of ignored her, which I get. I mean, when you start to have a fit at 15 years old, your mom's not really gonna pay much attention to you. She knew that in a couple of hours, maximum, Kiplin was gonna be fine. She was gonna get over it. She was gonna attend her driver's ed in her school, come home like everything was fine and everything would be made up. By the time they pulled up, she had stopped crying and her and her mom said their goodbyes. Her mom didn't realize that that was going to be the last time she ever saw her daughter. And I can only imagine how that would feel. To be the last memory with your daughter, a fight that ended in tears. That you didn't even comfort her. Because honestly, it was a stupid fight. They were stupid tears. They didn't need comforting. But I can just imagine that that last moment with her daughter sticking in her mind forever. And after her driver's ed class, she went 
to school. She attended her morning classes and all of her friends saw her then. They also all saw her at lunchtime. But then after lunch, nobody saw Kiplin Davis. She had told friends that day that she wouldn't be going to her after school activities and had even thought about running away because she was so mad at her parents. And then when she failed to return home that night, her parents began getting worried. They waited an hour and a half before conducting their own investigation. They didn't think it warranted a police call yet because she was mad. So maybe she was just out, you know, disobeying their rules because she was so mad at her parents. And I know they probably wish they would have just called the police then and there. Her parents started with a ton of phone calls. They called all of her friends, but none of them had any idea where she went after lunch. The only information the parents got was that she had told them that she was not going to attend her after school activities. And that was it. So then her parents decided to leave the house and drive to the school themselves. They wanted to see if for some reason she was hanging out by the school because she was still mad. Maybe she was walking around the halls, sitting with friends. They didn't know, but they didn't assume she was gone forever at this point. They got to the school and walked around and didn't see any sign of her. They decided to check all of her comfort spot. They assumed that she might have gone to because she was so mad. They went and checked the church. They still checked some of her friends' houses and still no luck finding Kiplin Davis. At that point, they decided to inform the authorities and get some outside help. But the heartbreaking thing is when authorities assume somebody is a runaway, especially a 15-year-old girl that got into a massive fight with her parents the day before, they don't do much, but wait. At the beginning of her investigation, she was marked as a runaway. They informed the parents that she'll come home when she's ready, and if she hasn't been home by the next day, then maybe they would look at other options. And it frustrates me so much because there are so many things that happen in this case that should not have happened. They could have found Kiplin, at least her body, before it became a no-body case. This is such a frustrating case, mostly on the authorities' end. When they realized they needed to do something, they tried their hardest, but by then it was too late. And they still, in this case, have times where they just don't realize things that they should have realized in the first place. And it's just so frustrating. Because Kiplin and her family do not get the justice that they deserve because of the authorities' doings. And when the authorities informed them that they weren't going to do anything until at least the next morning, they decided they still had to continue their own search, and I'm so glad they at least did that. They decided to call all of her friends again and try to get more numbers for people that they did not have in the first place. At this point, they got somewhere. One of their phone calls pointed to a young man named Eli. When they called him and asked what he knew, he pointed them to a man named Chris Jepson. He informed them that earlier that day, he had seen Kiplin talking to him during lunchtime. This was the first time that they had gotten a lead, an actual lead. And they thought back to when they dug through Kiplin's room when she went missing and they realized they had actually read an entry in one of her diaries about a boy named Chris Jepson. Kiplin had a massive crush on him. I guess you can assume where their thought process moved to. They quickly thought that maybe Kiplin and Jepson were dating. And maybe, because Kiplin was so mad at her parents, she was at Jepson's house. They actually knew where Jepson lived and decided to head over to his house. When they knocked, his younger sister answered. Jepson wasn't home yet, she informed the family, and she assumed that he was still at school since he was actually a drama tech and he often worked late hours. 
She told the family that they could drive back and check the school, and he might be there, and that's where they could ask him. Otherwise, he'll be home later that night. So at this point, maybe they are dating. Maybe Kiplin is at school with Jepson still, in the drama tech room that they're working on, and they just didn't see her before, so they decided to drive back to the school. When they arrived, it was dark, and they went and tried all of the doors, and they were locked. The doors were locked, the lights were off, it was after 10 p.m. So they just assumed that maybe they missed him. Maybe he was there with Kiplin. Maybe they were hanging out. And maybe when Jepson was done with his drama tech duties, they decided to head back to his house and they just must have drove right by each other. So they got back in their car and they drove back to Jepson's house, hoping to catch him and Kiplin together. When they arrived back at Jepson's house, it was a little after midnight now. They pulled up and they actually recognized a new vehicle parked outside of his house. This vehicle belonged to a David Leifson. He was a student at Spanish Fork High School, and they knew him because Kiplin had often talked about him as well. They sat outside the house for a minute, contemplating what they think they should do. There were lights on in the house and people moving around, which led them to believe that somebody had to be awake. But instead of knocking on the door to question the family and ask Jepson if he knew anything, Kiplin's parents decided to go home, a decision that still haunts them to this day. When asked in later interviews why they decided to go home, they claimed that even though it appeared as though somebody was awake and moving around, it was rude to knock on somebody's door after midnight, and that was something that was drilled into their head by living in a small town like Spanish Fork. And the next morning, when they woke up, Kiplin was still not home. This is something that I just don't understand. I'm gonna be honest with you. If my child went missing, and I was on a search for my child, I don't care what time it is. If you could know any information on where she or he would have been, I would be knocking on your door at 2.30 at night. I know that they considered it to be rude, but be rude. Guys, if somebody goes missing that you care about, be rude. I promise you, nobody is going to care that you knock on their door at 2.30 at night if your child is missing and they realize that it is a big deal. Honestly, if they would have knocked, what if she was there? Maybe she still wouldn't have been alive, but maybe she was. What if she was there and they just left and she needed help? Be rude, guys, be rude. That's all I have to say in this situation. I don't care, be rude. And by that next morning, they called the authorities back and informed them that she had not come home still. This is where the authorities started to get involved. They had talked to the school and decided to make morning announcements over the intercom, asking if anybody knew anything to come forward. When this didn't work at first, they decided to post these announcements throughout the day. Whenever the bell would ring and they would be let out to go to the next class, they would rerun these announcements, begging the students that if they knew anything to go to a teacher, to go to an adult, to call the authorities, please help bring Kiplin Davis home. But this got them nowhere. In fact, this is where the rumors started. Rumors started spreading around the school of what had happened to Kiplin Davis. But these were just rumors, right? A lot of the rumors pointed towards one person, Jepson. And when these announcements didn't get them any leads, the police began to question the students. And this is where they heard about all of these rumors. The first person they pulled aside was Jepson. Jepson informed the police he only saw Kiplin at lunch and that was it. He went and talked to her and had a normal conversation. He then went for class the rest of the day, and his attendance proved that. 
Then, when the day was over, he went to the auditorium with Olsen and Leifsons to string lights and get ready for an upcoming play at 11 p.m. at night, bringing two more people in on his story. He actually had a key to the school because of his weird hours, and he said he locked the doors of the school and turned off all the lights to keep him and his friends safe while they worked in the auditorium. The police pulled Olsen and Leifsen aside as well and asked them about that story. They claimed the exact same thing happened. They went, they strung lights for this upcoming play, and they left. Their alibi seemed to check out, and so they moved on to other suspects. Then they stumbled across a boy named Brandon, who had actually asked her out on a date that day during lunch, who later pulled her aside and canceled because he was actually seeing another girl at the time. Brandon was also missing his last couple of periods after lunch. But when they asked him about it, his story was that he wanted to go apologize. He went after lunch to go find Kiplin Davis to apologize for asking her out when he was seeing another girl because he really did like her, but he couldn't find her. At that point, he was already late for his classes and decided he was just going to head home. He did inform the police that he actually got a flat tire on the way home and he called a friend. But when they pulled the friend aside and asked him, the friend said that that never happened. He never helped Brandon change a tire and he never even got a call from him. This was very suspicious, but as of right now, they had no other leads or motives as to why Brandon would have done anything. So they kind of pushed that aside for now. They remembered it, they remembered it but they continued their investigation like they didn't know it had happened. And by then a few unconfirmed sightings had come in on her. People were claiming they were seeing her on Main Street, but every time they would go and follow up on these leads, they never led anywhere. By then they decided to search her locker. They pulled out all of her stuff and she had every single one of her personal items in there, including her purse, which she would not have left anywhere without. At this point, the police started suspecting foul play. Nothing pointed to a runaway anymore, besides that one comment she had made to her friends about the fight with her parents. But she would not have left her purse if she was running away. There was money in it. There was all of her personal belongings that she needed in that purse. At this point, they knew something was wrong. The police started to hear all of the rumors around the school as the months passed and she still was nowhere to be found. The rumors were that she had been raped murdered, and hidden up Spanish Fork Canyon. The rumors also placed Olsen and Leifsen up the canyon with Kiplin the day it happened. In July of 1995, the FBI joined the case, and the parents then decided to put up a $5,000 reward for any information leading to finding Kiplin Davis. But this still didn't get them anywhere. The FBI couldn't even untangle this web of lies and a mess that this case was. A year after Kiplin went missing, Jepson went to Kiplin Davis's parents' house, out of the blue, knocked on the door, and said that he needed to tell the parents something. By this point, Kiplin's dad thought that he was going to confess that he knew information that he had been holding onto for a year. He started to pressure him, to tell him what he knew. What did he come here to tell him? But Jepson just said that he had nothing to do with Kiplin's disappearance. Kiplin's dad obviously freaked out. He told Jepson that there is no way that he came all this way just to inform him that he had nothing to do with his daughter's disappearance. 
He pressured and pressured, and Jepson got scared and ran. And at that point, Kiplin's father walked inside, obviously shaken up, and decided to call the police. He informed the police of this weird encounter that he had with Jepson. The police agreed. They thought that that was a really weird thing for him to do. And they felt the same way, that he had information that he was withholding and choosing to not tell them, but got scared when he was about to tell them. This led them to decide to pull all of the boys back into the police station a year after her disappearance and question them all over again. So far, all of the boys kept the same story that they have always said, that they went to the auditorium, they set up lights, they threw a football around, had a good time, then they left when they were done. But when they pulled Olsen aside, he started writing a completely different statement they were reading over his story as he was writing it, and he wrote that he and Leifson left school after lunch that day with Kiplin Davis. They drove up to the canyon, and Leifson and Kiplin walked off together. About 35 to 40-ish minutes later, Leifson came back alone. The police began freaking out. This was a lead that they had never heard before. This is giving them somewhere to look. And before Olsen could finish his statement, they began bombarding him with questions and asking him what happened and telling him to tell them what happened. And Olsen got scared. He crumpled up his statement and threw it in the garbage, asked for a new one, and then proceeded to write the same story that he had always written. The same story that every single one of the boys involved were saying, that he went to the auditorium. They threw a football around, they set up lights, and they left that night. And because they didn't let Olsen finish his statement, they could not use this as evidence, but they could use the information in a polygraph test, to which they got all the boys involved to agree to take. So they sat them down and they asked them their story. They said the same story they've always been saying, and that's when they brought up the statement. The boys didn't even skip a beat. They said that that didn't happen. They kept the same story they always kept, and they passed their polygraph test. Now, polygraph tests cannot be used in a court. They are not reliable enough as evidence. They are really only used to help determine which individuals are involved, which individuals are lying, which individuals they really have to be focusing more attention on. So it's not like this polygraph test was going to be used as evidence. They already knew that right off the bat. But now they couldn't even use it as like a yes, they were involved. But Olsen's statement still convinced them that these guys were the men that they were looking for. But they had to let them go because they had nothing to hold these men in. Not only did they pass the polygraph test, but they really had no proof since Olsen did not get to finish his statement. And now, because the rumors of the school were all pointing up towards Spanish Fork Canyon, and Olsen's uncompleted statement also stated Spanish Fork Canyon, in the summer of 2005, they decided to take search dogs up the canyon in hopes of finding something up there. But they came back empty-handed. And this is where the case turned cold for years. The police were pretty sure that they had the right men. They decided that they were going to try to charge them in front of a grand jury because of just how much evidence they had against them to prove that they at least had something to do with it. 
So many people came forward to testify against the young men. Jepson's wife even came forward saying that they were having a conversation about the worst thing that they had ever done after watching a show called So I Married an Axe Murderer. And he responded with, what if I told you I murdered Kiplin Davis? Obviously she was taken aback. She was shocked, scared, and she didn't know what to say. When he saw the fear on her face, he laughed and said, no, I'm just joking. You know, it was nothing. Ha ha. But it's always stuck in her mind because he did not sound like he was joking. It also came to light in front of a grand jury that Leifson threatened Olsen. After that polygraph test, Leifson pulled Olsen aside and told him that if he ever put his name in relation with the Kiplin Davis case again, he would kill him because he knew that that statement came from Olsen. The police had informed them during the polygraph that Olsen was the one that started this statement. So now Leifson has even more evidence on him that he's trying to hide something. Then, during court, it was discovered that their alibi for all these years was a lie. There was actually a show being put on in the auditorium that night and they could not have been there stringing up lights and throwing a football all night. This is where a domino effect of charges started happening. They had all this proof that these boys were involved. They knew that they had to have something to do with it, but they just would not crack. But this is something I'm going to get into on the next episode. We're gonna leave this story here today. And I really want you to think about all of the information that you've heard in this story so far. There was a lot of mistakes that happened very early on in this case that honestly, in my opinion, contributed to the fact that this is a no-body case. I don't understand how they could not figure out that this alibi was a lie all these years. It was never true. Did they not check it out? Did they take the boy's word for it? I just don't understand how they got away with the fact that they had a false alibi for years when it took one fact check to figure out that there was a show in the auditorium that night. And also, how did these boys attend their last period classes if they were up in the canyon with her? If you think about that, this is something that was talked about in my school when I was growing up. I would always sit into class with teachers and they would inform everybody at the beginning of the school year that they will never mark you as here if you decide to leave. They will always mark you as absent because this is one of the rumors, many, many rumors that have come up about this case where they said that the boys had went to their teachers near the end of the day that they were friends with and had said, hey, we're going to go up the canyon for a while. We know this stuff. Will you mark us as here? And the teachers did. And that's why they weren't marked as there when they weren't. But then it makes you really think, did these boys plan this? If they are the people we're looking for, because why else would they ask to be marked as here if they didn't plan on needing an alibi? Does that make sense? I have a lot of feelings on this case, and most of these we're gonna go ahead and get into on the next episode. But there's a lot of frustrating things already right off the bat about this case, and I bet you, you can agree. This is where I'm gonna leave this case today, and I'll see you in the next episode. Once again, Kiplin Davis was 15 years old and went missing on May 2nd, 1995 from Spanish Fork, Utah. Her date of birth was July 1st, 1979. 
She is white with red hair and blue eyes, stands at 5'3", and was 110 pounds when she went missing. If you have any information about this case, any information at all, it could be the smallest detail, or if you know where Kiplin Davis is, please contact the Spanish Fork Police Department at 801-804-4700 or call 911. Next time, we will talk about the charges and who got charged for what and a little bit more information about her disappearance that we know of today. We will also get into some theories and my personal thoughts on this case. Let's help bring Kiplin Davis home together and get talking about this case once again. There may be false or misleading information throughout this podcast. All facts have been researched to the best of my abilities, but accidents do happen. If this is a story you are interested in knowing more about, I highly recommend doing your own research. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.